Hey everybody, welcome back to another Photog Adventures podcast. I'm Aaron King. I'm Brendan Porter. With families and day jobs, we know it's hard to find time to get out there with your camera. So Brendan and I joined together and made the commitment to go out consistently and build up our landscape and astrophotography portfolios. We live in Utah and are lucky to have so many beautiful landscapes all around us. Not only do we have five national parks right here in Utah, but we are only a day or less drive away from 30 other national parks. So we created PhotogAdventures.com, this podcast, and our YouTube channel to chronicle our adventures. Come along with us to amazing places and learn from our mistakes and our successes. We hope that you will get out there too and have a photog adventure of your own. It is episode 65. Second, 65. Second to last episode of the year. Second to last. Because I know Christmas Day, we've already recorded this episode with Jordan Yance. Yep. We have an episode coming out that's episode 66. And that will be the last podcast of 2017. <laughs> the year is over. We will have at that point be one number off for a hundred percent of every week since we began. Technically, based on how many Mondays have happened mm. since we began, we needed sixty-seven podcasts, and our first podcast of twenty eighteen will be sixty-seven. So we'll okay. be right on okay. track. So you know it's okay because we took a few trips, and the fact that we blitzed it this month to make up for all the podcasts we missed for this year has been pretty incredible. It's been important too because it's always fun to talk about things that happen just barely. And when Mm -hmm, it's 2018, mm -hmm. January, February, and you're hearing about the Pocatello Photo Club in, you know, October. Right. eh, September, October, it's not as cool. And so it's been really good to feel like, okay, everything coming up is going to be stuff we've just barely done. Like uh, we just did the steel wool photography mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. and we just barely and we did just that. barely did that so yeah so yeah it feels so good oh man but enough about us let's talk about us more us more let's us. take a break from us and talk about us <laughs> we want to talk about what we learned in 2017 in landscape photography for the mm-hmm. first segment astrophotography in the second segment and then just general photography things that kind of clicked or we understood better just this is what we figured out by just over and over doing these things mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. Sit back and enjoy and in maybe get some tips from a couple dudes that are just trying this out and learning. And these are the things that you might have already captured, figured out, and know. And you're laugh at us for figuring it out now. But man, we just this is what happened in 2017. I'm pretty sure someone like Jeff just laughs at us all the time because <laughs> he's just like, these guys. <laughs> I, I think that's why he listens. I think he, I think he really enjoys laughing at us. Not in a way that's rude, but just in a, no, these chuckleheads, they, they're figuring it out. At least he enjoys our company still. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I can't wait to hang out with him again in Moab. Woo! All right, so 2017. It is now two days before Christmas. Brendan's at my house once again. We're recording yet another podcast this week. I think this is our fourth podcast recorded this week. Um, yes, <laughs> it's if not nuts. fifth. <laughs> if not fifth. <laughs> so let's talk landscape photography. And we'll start with you, man. Mm-hmm. With landscape photography, what happened in 2017 that you really, okay, it clicked, I learned it, this is me in 2017. Mm-hmm. So, um... I've been taking photos digitally, I mean, with a fairly decent camera. My, my first camera was 19, you know, was it 2003 or four, I believe? Beginning of 2004, I bought, in the spring of 2004, yeah, I bought a, um, a uh, Minolta Dimash 7. Okay. Which was a 5.1 megapixel camera that wasn't a digital SLR, but it was digital SLR-like. And it was used for $500.00. And it was a sweet little camera. It had some good glass <laughs> on it, and it was really plasticky. But should I play a harp since really you're going fun, that far back in the really past? Really fun to use. But before that, I learned back when I was a kid. Yeah, so before now I'm talking back learned? back when I was a child. <laughs> when I was a teenager, I actually did learn composition and video stuff when I was in high school. Oh, and gotcha. so I'm talking about composition here. So I've been taking photos digitally for the last like you know f- forever, fifteen plus years. And before that, I was doing video. And doing video in high school and stuff like that, we did a lot of it too. It wasn't just like a video class during the middle of school for an hour. It was like half the day for the last oh, two years wow. of high school. So it was a vocational class, lots of time spending on the subject. That's awesome. And so we learned composition and we learned all the stuff. And so, of course, the similar rules apply. So I never thought about composition the whole time taking pictures digitally. So Kind of became, because it came naturally. Yeah. Yeah, so so when you you and I are just going out there and you're talking about composition all the time, and I'm just like I'm just taking pictures that look good, and I'm applying <laughs> similar principles, but then about halfway through the year, after you know your tutorials and and watching you explain composition, especially the stuff you learned at Disney, I'm like, you know what, I am learning something a little bit here. This is awesome. Oh, that is really cool. And to hear. so, um, because there's so many things that I wasn't doing, 
And by changing the things that I did learn from you, a lot of stuff in the foreground I didn't have before. And so focusing mm. on a good foreground subject was like paramount to me. And that's what I really learned the most this year is getting something cool and attractive and a leading line and just focusing more on that and actually going out and intentionally doing that has made my landscape photography so much better. That's, like, a, that's you know, a great point. Sorry. You were um, saying, you know, you know, and then I'm going to add on to your point because one of my points was foreground feature. Mm-hmm. And so if you had more to that and then I'll jump in with mine. No, go ahead. Cause it's yeah? perfect for you to go. All right, on. cool. So the importance of a foreground feature, as I look at people's images and my own, and I think about the one that like just stands out that mm-hmm. says polish. I see it. I think, oh, this is polished. This is mm-hmm. gold. Are the ones that have something in their first third that is an obvious foreground feature. Right. Having a foreground element is one thing, and we've all made this, not mistake, but I'd say it's weaker than a strong subject because we have things in our foreground. Right. Look at these bushes on the sides of my frames. Right. They're in the foreground. But when you think about the photographers that you love and you picture their images, how often, more often than not, most likely, do they have something really profoundly important in the foreground? And it could be a simple thing like a crack or a rock or a bush, a bunch of flowers, but it's obviously featured. The Mm -hmm. focus is solid and that carries you from that plane of the bottom third into the second plane. Something like Aaron Bobnick's picture where she has those flowers that lead you up the mountain. Mm -hmm. Nick Page's pictures of rocks and big old sunflowers that are right up foreground and then they get featured and go into the rest of the plants. I mean, I'm trying to picture images in my head, you know, at the very moment right now off the cuff, but just... You know when you have a portfolio piece, when you see the polish in every third, a really strong foreground feature leading to the context of the scenery. And you know, oh, this is the setting. I understand where we are. Mm -hmm. We're in a glen. We're in a mountain. We're on a beach. You know, all that context happens around the important foreground feature. And then as a landscape photographer, your top third is a really great sky, interesting sky, dynamic clouds, something that's Mm -hmm. happening. And so the importance of the foreground feature, I really been thinking about a lot this year and failing many, many times in finding something. Right. I'm constantly thinking, oh man, okay, I'm looking over here and there. I see these two things are my best subjects. Uh, I'll try this one. I take the picture and then afterwards I look at it and go, only Mm. I know I focused on that feature. Mm. It doesn't stand out from the rest of the elements there. Right. It's not an obvious color difference from the other elements in the foreground. And it's not an obvious shape difference, texture difference than the rest of the things in the foreground. It just is Mm. lacking. Mm -hmm. It is definitely a challenge. And that's what, that's what's been better for me in general is taking that challenge and actually applying it and trying to focus more on that as intentionally. Um, It's, when I think about some of the, some of the good photographers and, and even like on Instagram, the moment we came back from Oregon, I saw the other photographers up on that rock that we were with. There was like six of us there, seven which of us rock, maybe. Which place in Oregon? Uh, in Cape, Cape Quanta. Oh, okay, cool. And um, for instance, that was definitely a, a strong yeah. point because I looked at this one guy's shot with his, with his rock. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's fantastic. And I was <laughs> yeah. right there in the same spot, but I didn't get that shot. And I think I said in the podcast, but that, everybody else took spots first and then Josh came and he kind of thought he was getting a leftover spot mm-hmm. and he turned it into probably better than what I have. And I say right. probably cause I haven't finished processing it, but I, I think it's going to be because just that foreground feature makes it so yeah, much stronger. Rock. It's cool. Interesting coat, you know, texture rock. And so composition is something that I've really tried to focus on. And when I look at other people's pictures that I really like, they always mm-hmm. always some, you know, like you said, some really cool ice cracks or, something that leads you into the into the rest of the picture and um exactly yeah and i want and it's something you can't fake okay that's something you that's what i was gonna i was trying to remember mm, like i lost my train gotcha, of thought that's for you something were. you cannot do in photoshop you cannot add something amazing and in focus and part of the scene you just can't fake it and that's what i was trying to that's the other thing i wanted to point out is like when you have a strong composition you have a great foreground element mm-hmm. no one can take that from you and say oh it's photoshop because guess what nope you just that just proves you're a good photographer you know there's a good there's that's the difference between a good photo and a great photo i think is that the great photos have that forethought the intention of getting that element focusing yeah. on it making sure it's part of the scene and making it a strong part of the lower third so I'm looking at a picture right here that's from what is a slot canyon. It's 
Mears. I, I can't tell where Nick is, but he's hiking out in southern Utah. And check this out. You've got in the area where tons of rocks, water going through the Slot Canyon, and he still finds a rock that is an obvious foreground subject. Yeah. Right there in the middle. I've seen some shots of his that are way better, but I think because he's trying to get the whole Slot Canyon, the height of it, mm-hmm. he can't, you know, place your wide-angle camera right over the top of your foreground subject so that it just kind of bends underneath the camera. And it has this really cool dynamic, larger at the bottom, smaller at the top of its feature, mm-hmm. and then pulls you into the rest of the image. And right here, he's not right on top of this rock, but you know that in his framing, he put the rock He's there. thinking about it, though. You can yeah. tell. He's practicing and thinking about it, even though it's not the... F- most fantastic picture um it's still you as as we're talking about this subject we can point out say he was definitely thinking about it yeah and he didn't just haphazardly do that that's intentional here's a secret beach image where he has nothing but water everywhere reflecting the awesome sea stacks mm-hmm. and a good sunset but then there's but that then there's one, that bu- there's that pebble, that with pebble. The, and the pebble even has some leading lines going into it so when you think there. about what are you trying to get as a foreground subject that's going to work don't just think shape. If you think shape by itself, you're going to end up in a situation where a lot of times that shape blends into the rest of your foreground. Mm. Unless you really dodge and burn the heck out of the scene and draw the eyes to it, you're going to have a situation where your shape is blending in, camouflaged by other things in the area. So think more about a texture that is different than the rest. Josh's picture over there at Cape Kiwan is a good example how his rock was completely different texture and color striping mm-hmm. than everything else around it. Mm-hmm. So it was not only his focus, but it was the one thing our eyes are going to see easily. Mm-hmm. So color difference, texture difference, shape difference. If it's completely different than the rest of the shapes around it, like a rock in a big glossy gossamer water pulling away shot of a wave, mm-hmm. that rock is a different you know shape than everything else. And yeah. so those things, make sure that whatever it is, it's different than the surrounding area. And now, obviously, you're not going to be able to do this, what we're talking about right now, in every single image you take. I mean, it's just going to be impossible to find a foreground. Sometimes you really do need to just take a big, huge, wide panel of a huge vista area. Yeah, so something like this giant waterfall that's famously shot. um, Palouse Falls. Palouse Falls, yeah. I mean, there's a million pictures of that place because it's beautiful. And what does Nick do? I mean, he's got a great shot where it shows the falls well, but there's just nothing in the foreground except for the curvature of the cliff edge that's right Mm -hmm. underneath his camera lens. So he's using that strong shape of the water down there to lead you through the image and up into the sunset. So um, there's other things you can do. This is just one thing that I have focusing on for 2017 because I took lots of big Vista pictures and stuff, and I yeah. also thought that they were okay. But it wasn't until I really started focusing on a strong foreground element that really helped my um, portfolio, I think. Absolutely. The other thing I'm going to mention, and then we'll go on to your next one, Brendan, is that how much light there is in the afterglow. Mm. So much light in the afterglow that can, if you have clouds above your head, it could actually light your foreground that has no sunlight hitting it. And when your foreground's lit up just enough and you don't underexpose it and you can really capture that dynamic range, or it's not even dynamic at that point, it's just dark. If you Mm -hmm. capture that dark scene and it pops, you have tons of great color. And I really learned the benefits of afterglow light that has clouds above you and not all the way on the horizon. Yeah. Because then they light your foreground. So when you're waiting and watching for the blue hour and afterglow to happen, that afterglow, if it's hitting clouds above you and you can see you, your camera, your friend next to you, and you're all kind of glowing pink, you can take a shot. Even though you, it seems really dark, capture a shot because there's yeah. tons of light there. Yeah. Um, especially with that, that shot when I'm thinking of the the um, fall colors for 2017. It's, oh, yeah. Having those, those lights turn on in the city because it was dark enough for lights to start turning on. And yet I didn't capture that image. And I feel like an idiot for not getting that now. <laughs> That's funny. Because, because I love the way those lights turned out for you. <laughs> right behind us is an image of Brendan's shot of the fall colors in 20, uh, 2016. And he captured it from this angle. And I kept feeling like an idiot for not going down there and capturing this scene from that angle. Mm-hmm. And then the next year, you're wishing you were not an idiot and captured what I captured yeah, because of the because, timing. Because looking at this image, you can see the foreground. The, the, the foreground just blends right into the middle. You know, oh, the foreground yeah. blends right into the middle. It gets lost as a color texture. Lost, and then you see the lake. But if having these lights would give so much more interest to the middle the third. The story's clear of what you're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. And then having the great sky and everything, that would have just made this image just amazingly better. And so. 
Imagine the combination of that. I know I'm going to focus on next year for sure. And if you get a great sunset with light in it, like this one, where you Mm -hmm. see the sun and you can see the source of light hitting across the terrain, just waiting for blue hour and have the lights turn on and then light blend and do a lighten blend mode to bring those in. That could have been polished right there. Exactly. Absolute polish. That'd be fantastic. So it's taking that time, setting up a comp that you like, but then waiting and for the best of every moment. Right. Mm -hmm. And then taking that, and stacking those images into something that just really can shine. That's the cool thing about A time about blend that. like that is such a cool thing because it takes in the experience that when you think about it as a memory, you were out there, you were on Cinque Terre, and you were enjoying the view, and then you see everything happen from the sunset to nightfall, and you think back on it in your memory, all of it gets kind of compressed in your memory as all one big amazing moment. Right. And you time blend. And you blend. can put that in an image, right? Yeah. So as a single image, yeah. You time blend that all together and you can capture all of the beauty of each little moment, golden hour to sunset to blue hour, and really bring something amazing. If you want to yeah. see yeah. that, that's in complete control in every of his shots in Elio Locardi's photography. He does that very, very well. The time and it's blend. not cheating. I mean, yeah, you didn't get in a single image. Boo-hoo. Who cares? I mean, he's captured you're that gonna want, awesome scene. You know, they're, they're, I feel like a purist sometime myself where I wish <laughs> I can get all, all in one shot, but you can't sometimes. So, you know, just do the best, best with what you got. You got tools that are available now and we can really make things shine by doing a little extra processing. And I feel like if you don't move your tripod for any of your shots from bracketing to composing together multiple times, uh, I don't feel like that's a problem whatsoever because mm-hmm. it's still the same shot, still the same angle. You didn't, you know, do a sky replacement or something like right, that. Right, right. So what was your next uh, thing that you learned in landscape photography So after focusing on compositions, I realized that I wanted things to be a little bit sharper in my images. I didn't want to just, you know, have everything be wide open and have so much bokeh. As much as I love bokeh, especially with my macro stuff, <laughs> right? Um, I really, for the longest time, I'd see like a picture, for instance, of like the Tetons. And I remember this picture specifically, um, I don't know where it was taken, but it was like this field with wide open field. There was a barn right in the middle. And then behind the barn was these huge mountains and it was all sharp. And for the longest time as a, as a novice photographer, I'm wondering how in the heck did they do that? You know, like how do they get everything so so sharp? sharp? (laughs) Like how are the flowers sharp and the barn sharp and the mountains sharp? Like what in the world? And so that's because (laughs) of the F-stop. I mean, they had this thing at like F32 or something probably. And so as I was focusing on my compositions, I realized, okay, I want everything to be, I want things to be more sharp, especially foreground and background. So that's when you start you know, messing with your f-stop and turning your f-stop up, up, up. And so, especially like F16 in the, kind yeah, of level? F16 to F22 right or whatever, on. F11 and higher, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, really playing with that more and really liking what I'm getting out of that because that's how you get the sharp foreground, the sharp middle, and the sharp background. So um, that's one thing that I definitely learned too is just to play around and not be so stingy with my f-stop to experiment, to jack the number all the way up or bring it all the way down if you're focused on something cool because you never know the results. Sometimes a blurry background is great for that scene and sometimes a really sharp foreground and background are great for that scene. So yeah. don't be don't be afraid to, to play with your F-stop. It's interesting. You hear the F8 and B there mm-hmm. and that's a nice trick to just, you're going to focus and get a great shot. Yeah, if but, it's the middle of the day, F8, ISO 100, you'll get a good shot. You uh-huh. know what I mean? Like, it's just like- you great and sharp. Yeah. But having that F-16, in Oregon, we did F-16 a lot, mm-hmm. and I'm loving it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So my other, my last thing that I want to bring up, not the last thing that I learned in 2017, but just to keep this podcast from being six hours long, I am saying light rays in Zion. Everything mm-hmm. we did in Kolob Canyon mm-hmm. taught me about the light rays. At first, light rays to me was a mystical, can't plan for it, coming out of the clouds, how do you control for it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I started realizing in Kolob Canyon that light rays are happening all around you most likely. You yeah. just have to get in the right position. And when you, me, and Rusty Parkhurst, we were out there trying to capture the light rays because we knew we had seen them on the curve if we're yes. driving through there yes. in Kolob Canyon the previous year. We knew we wanted to capture that again. So when we drove in from the first area that we took our sunrise shot and went to that spot that we knew we had seen them, we were kind of in them, and so we're looking up thinking, okay, I don't see any light rays right now. Let's go over here where the sun's going to hit. And as a like a doofus, I put us in a position to be in the light ray. Right. And you must be perpendicular to the light ray, right. meaning that 
there's a dark contrasty area where just there's all in shadow still, but light is beaming through one peephole, one arch, one just notch in the rock Mm -hmm. or trees. And if you are standing in it, looking at the sun or kind of close to it, you can't tell that you're in a light ray. So you go far over perpendicular to the angle of light that's coming through there and look back at it. Mm-hmm. And there it is almost mm-hmm. all the time, as long as there's particulates in the air, dust and stuff, and, you know, enough shadow happening. Mm-hmm. And so early morning and sunset, it happens all day long through clouds, but in like in, cl- in cloudy weather, like stormy weather, because yeah, yeah. of the particulates and moisture in the sky. Right. But in the morning and sunset, morning, I, see, I seem to see it more in the morning than I do in the morning. sunset. Yeah, yeah. But I'm the sure it's mist the same. Is still hanging out, right? And Maybe so. that's it. Is the temperature change of the whole day? Mm-hmm. It's kind of all dried up, and you don't see it as often, right? So it's all about the particulates and too. There was not a cloud in the sky. It was like there was cloudless sky, and yet these big beams of shafts of light were shining through, mm-hmm. just because enough moisture and dust was in the air still. And yeah. so we learned to take advantage of it, knowing that okay, this is a big old dark shadowy canyon. The light was hitting over here on these trees, and as soon as Rusty and I got out there, I almost said Dusty. I did that once or <laughs> twice when we were hanging out with him. When I got out there to the side of the street and looked perpendicular at it. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. I have a printout that I've just done over there at Costco that has that image. And it's just, I still love what was happening with the green, green trees against their orange rock and the light beams coming in. I haven't fully captured a portfolio piece of it, Mm -hmm. but I captured the moment as memory and I love it. Yeah. And and with that, you can go back to that same Mm -hmm. spot and be like, okay, I know what happens now. I just need to find a better comp now. And so that's the great thing about going back to the same spot. So- that's another thing that I learned. Just a really quick tip is, hey, go back to the same spot. You Obviously, know? yeah. Go to the same spot a couple times a year. Go to the same spot multiple times in the same exact time of the year, multiple years, you know, and, and you're going to find a different composition and make that spot and then make a portfolio piece out of have a place that you already love, you know? And I like to call it the Elia Locardi method, but yeah. really it's everyone's method who has the freedom to do it. Mm-hmm. But to go to an area and stay there for three, four, five days even seven, eight, and you find your composition that you like, but then just experience the morning light, the sunlight during the day and the sunlight at night and see what happens. And then wait, yeah. wait for a really atmospheric moment. Wait for a really cool time. He's in Borneo. He knew he captured the star trails he wanted over this mountain. And he knew that fog can roll through here in the mm. valley in between mm-hmm. these mountains. And so he just waited for many, many days. And I can't wait till we have him on the podcast. He said he's going to come on, but he's been really busy. And so as soon as he gets on and we can join us, nice. I want to ask him about that and how many days it actually was and what it's like and how often does he get the per- like the freedom to do that because yeah, yeah. I really want to do that more next year and just go out to a place find that awesome composition like Dead Horse Point where I want to see the clouds come in and just wait for that morning that's yeah. perfect Yeah, and you know all of us most of us can't do that but that is a yeah. huge way to get the great shot. Yeah. You just can't, you know, with the busy lives, you just can't drop the hat and go to some place. But sometimes you have an opportunity to do, and you can. Yeah. So what's your last tip before we go into astrophotography okay, my last segment tip, two? My last tip is actually going to spill over into astro, and so because it has to do with processing in Lightroom. So <laughs> um, a lot of us are using Lightroom. I know that a lot, of, a lot of other guys are using, starting to use Luminaire and stuff like that, other software. Just because Lightroom's forcing us to think about other options. Yeah, yeah, because Adobe didn't do very well there. Um, it's a different <laughs> topic podcast altogether. <laughs> we should bring in Jeff Harwin for that because he's a guru he's, about talking yeah, about that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so in Lightroom, I've been using that for the last couple of years. I was using the Apple stuff before Aperture for a long time. Mm. Felt really hesitant to move to Lightroom. Finally made the change. And a couple of years ago, been using that and learning more and more and more as I use it. Have you tried um, Capture One? I haven't at all. I've only seen a Lyle Lucardi use it. I haven't, I haven't used it bought it. I guess, you know, you, you've got to buy it to you know, I mean, they might right. have a trial version, but I, I've already, I already use all the other Adobe stuff. So I already just paid for it and it's just part of it. So. Right. That's the, how I feel too. They, yeah. they suckered me into the subscription. Now it's like, I'm yeah. just, I'm locked in. Yeah. And so, um, using Lightroom and processing with, with it in general, um, my landscape specifically has gotten better because I've learned how to like decrease the highlights and bring up some of the shadows and do some of these basic, um, things to just make a picture pop. And I can show someone raw, and they're like, oh, it's okay, in five seconds, boop, 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 boop. I can do my settings, <laughs> and they'll be like, whoa, that's that's a pretty cool picture. That's pretty great. Like, yeah. And so, um, but don't go overboard. You know, one of the things I, re- I realized is that, you know, you can add a lot of cool features by sliding the presence slider up, but don't go crazy. The because, presence slider, would you or mean? Or the clarity, sorry. Oh, in gotcha. presence, there's a clarity. Sorry, the clarity slider. Ah. 
Um, and so, you know, sometimes you can just slam that to a hundred and it looks kind of cool and you just leave it, you know? <laughs> and then other Gary times you're just like, don't go more than 20. Seriously. Just don't go for 20. Um, so <laughs> Gary Rohn has some awesome shots where he's done that. And it's, you know, you look at it and say, oh, that's too crazy full clarity. Right. But it's, it's his little style. It's, it's his style. It yeah, looks exactly. Exactly. So it everybody's going to have really their own good. style. Everybody's have their own style of taking the shot, composing the shot, you know, how they light it and everything. And then there's a whole different style when it comes to processing too and what they do to polish it. And some people really like like that bronzy look and some people really like, you know, there's so many different ways of processing an image once mm-hmm. it's taken. And so um, find your style, do do some experiments and don't don't be afraid to mess with the sliders. That's what I kind of learned as well is just, you know, playing with everything and learning and even watching some tutorials on YouTube and trying to get a, f- a better feel for how Lightroom works. And over 2017, I've really like, I touch almost, I touch a little bit of almost every slider now. If I you could know. feature one of our listeners, now he has a name that another listener has the exact name of. <laughs> so sorry, the other Rudy Serrano, I'm not talking about you. So you guys just in your mind decide who I'm talking about. But uh, <laughs> if you guys check out Rudy Serrano's images on our Facebook listeners group, he's constantly sharing images. So there's mm-hmm. plenty to find. And you can see what I'm talking about where he's found his style. And his yeah. style is flat out. There will be soft light very vibrant light and it'll be orangish red to yeah, pink. The orange it's, tint. It's, yes. Everything yeah. comes out with that. And he does what it needs. He needs to do in the processing to bring out that in each image. And mm-hmm. it's fantastic. It I'm, I'm a little jealous of it because yeah. it's very simple and not to, not to under, you know, appreciate what he does to get it there and how he captures mm-hmm. his shots and mm-hmm. how they're really great compositions and everything too. I mean, he's really strong, but it's just, it's a simple style that you can do and repeat in multiple pictures. And it's, I, I know it's Rudy Serrano's image before I ever see his profile. Cause he always, he often has a selfie of himself out there holding a camera, looking studly, you know, mm. he's got one camera on one side and he's like, I'm about to go Indiana Jones, the crap out of this landscape. He looks <laughs> awesome. And so he, he's got a style. He knows himself. Mm-hmm. He knows his shot and I love it. And I'm jealous of it. And I, I, I don't have that yet. I just have my excitement and passion that I'm living off of right yeah, now. Yeah. And so when, when it comes to processing, um, you almost, in some instances, you almost do the reverse when it comes to Astro. And so um, sometimes you want to turn the highlights up a little bit. And sometimes you want to do other things depending on how much light pollution you have. Or if you have no light pollution, you can bump up your highlights and get a better Milky Way. So there's different things to, um, to process when it comes to astrophotography. And so I've obviously done a lot of astrophotography processing. Um, mm-hmm. don't be afraid of processing panos. You know, if you're right. going out shooting a Milky Way and you need more space because the Milky Way is huge and you need you to take a pano, take a pano. Don't be afraid. Lightroom does a great job stitching panos together. Yeah. And then you can process that afterwards and you can have a great image. And so, um, you know, just talking, just thinking about the Owachoma bridge again, I mean, I processed the heck out of that thing <laughs> and made it look as natural as I possibly could have what I remember it looking like. And I mean, Photoshop did some, I mean, Lightroom did some crazy weird warping when it paneled those together. And I had to literally take it into Photoshop and unwarp it. And it has just been, but it was so rewarding, you know, oh having that. Oh my gosh. I mean, that done. you're reminded every time I look at it, how rewarding it is that it turned out because I drool and cry and have envy quite dr- dripping from my mouth. <laughs> and so it's such a great shot. It's such a great shot. Okay, so let's go ahead and get into astrophotography. Let's take a first break of the podcast and come back and talk what Brendan and I learned in astrophotography in 2017. Welcome back to the Photog Adventures podcast, everybody. Almost our last of the year where we're talking about what we learned in 2017, and now we're talking astrophotography. I'm going to start this one, and then you go into yours, because the yeah. first is not something you guys are you know, unaware of. Low-level lighting. We yes. used it entirely in 2017. Yes. We didn't even do a single moment. I can't remember doing a single moment where we had to run our flashlight around something in light paint. No, because after we talked to Royce about it and he just did the whole seminar and everything, we're just like, you know, we're never doing light painting again. There's no way. No There's one, no way we will. No. We can set up one light or two lights and then we can just <laughs> both shoot and move and do whatever we want. Oh, beautiful. It's been fantastic. So much better. When one of us decides, I'm going to take a time lapse now 
it isn't something where we have to all adjust around that person mm. doing a time lapse. It's just he's just running it. We just keep going. It's mm-hmm. a fun, awesome, easy way to do it. Now the things that I've learned in low level lighting, man, you get in an area where you want a light from a side that has very little land that's at the same level of your subject. Mm. Get a very tall thing to hold your light because often, more often than not, on my little tripod, my Manfrotto tripod over here, this fifty buck guy that I've been using. I would get in positions where I couldn't go any further like I needed to to really Mm -hmm. make the whole scenery look like it's being naturally lit Mm -hmm. instead of just lit by a light paint. And it just, if I went out too far, I would go down a hill or I'd go up a hill. Up a hill is great because I can can tip down. But down a hill, when I go down in valleys or off a cliff, I can't actually light as far as I wanted. You know, Mm -hmm. Sunrise Arch is an example of where we couldn't really light paint the whole arch without having a really hot one side of the arch and yeah. a low on the other side. big challenge for that one. Right? It's just not enough space. And so you need mm-hmm. a lot of space between you and your subject so that you can light it just right. I mean, you look at Royce's image out there, the Royce Bear Milky Way Butte over in Hanksville. Mm-hmm. It's just, he is crazy far away with his light, yeah. the same light that I have, and only one, and it looks so natural, and it lights up the facade of a, of a tall, tall subject. Yeah. And we keep doing small subjects and mm-hmm. other things, and I, I just haven't taken full advantage of a tall, tall subject like that with my big light source. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm excited to do that. I mean, the silo we do, but we do it from pretty close by. Mm-hmm. And so I'm excited mm-hmm. to do that again more next year and do and have more massive subjects like – you know, Temple of the Moon down there in um, mm. Capital Reef. Yeah, it's or Factory be... Butte or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Oh, he... Factory Butte is gigantic. <sighs> yeah. But how much can we light up? Let's find out. Yeah. So low-level lighting. First thing I learned in 2017 and practiced a lot of. Yeah, and that's one thing that I mentioned too is a better use of light. And so mm. using and using light, you know, not just light painting and having a friend go out there, but actually setting up a stationary light so much better. Um and the use of it, yeah, I mean, just amazing what you can do for your image. It's just amazing what, <laughs> what, what a single, even just a single light source can really set your subject up. And especially when you're doing Milky Way photography um, versus just having a silhouette, you know, just so much nicer. The other thing I learned using my Tamron and my Rokinon. In 2016, I used my Rokinon a lot more. In 2017, mm. I was almost almost 100% of the time using my Tamron. Mm, It's mm -hmm. so nice to have 15 millimeter focal range. It's so nice to have just that one lens and just put it on and just, yeah, don't think about it. It has a fantastic coma. It looks great. But, you know, when you think about how it handles the Milky Way core, there is a difference between an F2.8 and an F1.4. And I didn't even notice it. Until June, when you use that 50 millimeter 1.2, and I go, oh, mm. wow, that, that's a huge difference. What happens is with the larger aperture and a larger light bucket, you can really pull in something without blowing out your highlights. Mm. You can really pull in the light of all those stars without blowing out your highlights. And when, you, when I do, and I always did with my Tamron, I blew out the highlights of that one section of a lot of, a lot of white stars in the, mm-hmm. in the northern hemisphere, at least, is on the bottom of the, of the Milky Way core. I always blew it out because many, many stars together, really bright, and they all became one big white smudge. They mm-hmm. kind of all grouped mm-hmm. together as friends and connected. But in Brendan's shot of the 50 millimeter F1.2, F1.2, but I had think I had it stopped down to F2 when I took this. Even in that case, you stopped it on F2, mm-hmm. but it has that giant aperture in mm-hmm. there. And so it had better light production than an F2.8, still at F2, F2.0. Yeah, and yeah. so it came out... And you could see the texture of the stars in that white part, actual Mm. texture of the stars. It makes that little white section look like sand, where in mine, it looks like I've looked up and I got a glare off of a light. Mm. And so the difference, the muddy difference of my Tamron versus the 50 millimeter 2.0, it was completely different. And so I noticed that in June, we went through so many other situations where I wasn't able to really go back to my Rokinon because I was doing Mm -hmm. something else with my shots and just kind of gave up on it. But I can't wait to just sit there and look at the Rokinon versus the Tamron versus his 50 miller 2.0 and just compare them. Because we can stop down the, we can stop everyone down at 2.8 and just see what happens. But honestly, being able to go to 2.0, 1.4, and that kind of a setting is going to be what gives you the best light of not blowing out your highlights on your Milky Way. It's hard to think that you can blow out your highlights on such a distant, distant, low contrast subject like the Milky Way where you can barely see it all the time. 
but you can. You can blow out your highlights. Especially when you're processing. So, yeah, that's a good point. And that shot that you have is on our cover of our podcast because, or are we using the other one? I think we're using the other image for a cover, mm. but the one that you can see the difference between the cover and this one, just because of the texture, is so much cleaner, so much nicer, not yeah. being all muddied up. Yeah. And so the importance of f-stop yeah. and why I need to go back to using my Rokinon 2.4, uh, 1.4. Mm. That 24 millimeter 1.4 is going to be so much stronger than my Tamron, so I'm going to have another year of using that again. Oh, and then I had the chance... The, the opportunity, I'd say, to get the Sigma 14 millimeter 1.4, <laughs> that was, or was it 1.8? Was it 1.8? It was I think 1. it's a 1.8. Yeah. Still, yeah, it's 1.8. it was amazing. And if you <laughs> have the money and you want a prime lens for doing astro, wow, look into that. Sigma 14 millimeter, right? Yep, 14 millimeter 1.8. was 1. fantastic. Yes, it's heavy. Yes, it's big. But when you compare it for price versus the Canon it blows it out of the water. Oh, the Canon blows it away. Sorry, Canon, but Canon's useless for astrophotography. And it's so dirty. they make a better version, but um, it's got bad coma. It's not sharp. Use the Tamron long before you use the Canon. Yeah, exactly. The Tamron's fantastic. Yeah, so there's there is that wide angle Canon, but it's old lens. They haven't updated the model. If they do an update, I bet they'll compete with the Sigma. It'll be interesting to see what happens if they actually do that. Yeah. And blowing out your highlights, just want to emphasize, if you just do a different exposure and be careful about blowing out your highlights, you still can get a good texture in your Milky Way core. But you just had a lot easier time doing with a larger light bucket, like a larger aperture. Mm, Yeah. So one of the things I also um, kind of learned more about and focused more on in uh, Astro for last year was the histogram. Oh, yeah. Before meeting Royce, before doing all that stuff, and we had done a little bit of, you know, reading on the histogram before, but mm-hmm. it was really, I used it a lot more personally and, and focused on it a little bit more um, this year than previous year because I just really didn't know about it. You know, I just didn't really um, think about it a whole lot last year. And so this year has really been learning more about how the histogram works, what you want it to be looking like in your Milky Way area. And now I look at it for almost all my pictures. I'm looking at the histogram constantly now to see oh, my blacks are too black, I need to bring it back. And my whites are blown out so I can bring it down. And and especially when you're exposing for, when you're taking the picture and you're there at the Milky Way and you're excited for the composition you got, it's perfect. Make sure you tweak all your settings to expose for the histogram. We've got some great um, graphics on that. Royce has some great graphics on that, what your histogram needs to look like. And use that as a, as a template to how you should take your pictures and you'll be so much happier with the results when you come back and start processing them. It's going to be so much better for you. Absolutely. The last tip I have for ash photography, this last thing that I learned this year, is just the reminder of the limitations of a single frame when you're trying to get a nice focus and sharpness. Mm. If you're not stacking, if you're not doing panorama even, where you get the like sharpest part of your lens and you overlap at 50%, where you everything in your video, everything in your field of view ends up being a stitch of the best part of your glass. Mm. If you don't do those things or star tracking like Eric Benedetti, you just, there's limitations to how sharp your focus can actually mm-hmm. get. And I'm a big proponent of saying, hey, you're going to get sharp, awesome Milky photography with whatever lens you have right now. Just make sure you do these steps using a Carson Lumi Loop or something similar that's going to make sure that you get the most focus out of it as you possibly can. Yeah. And you're going to impress everybody. After your two year mark, it's time to move up. It's time to graduate to the next tier of sharpness and go into the stacking world, go into the panorama world a lot more, mm. use it in a small panorama, right in front of you panorama, not a full wide arching panorama. You can still use it in just what's in front of you just to get the best sharpness as well as, man, tracking, star tracking. And so when I look at my equipment and I think about what I can do to get that sharpness other than stacking, I get so excited about making sure that I set my settings to a point that I have really tight balls of light. And when Mm. we think about the 500 rule, 600 rule, 400 rule, all of those (laughs) rules, I've never liked any of them. And that's because they just, they're focused on the 35 millimeter and they deal with older sensors, older technology, the modern day sensors in your camera. In order to find out where you can get the least star trailing possible, you have to use something called the MPF rule. And the MPF rule, you can see right in the photo pills app. If you go to spot stars pill, the spot stars pill has the MPF rule that just does the math for you. Cause basically 
it's this weird equation of 30 times this times that times this where you put in together your pixel ratio, your pixel stretch ratio or something, all based on all the size stuff. of your sensor, yeah, the megapixels yeah. that you have. And it puts all that into consideration to get your sharpest star. So if I looked at mine and said Canon 6D and look at the spot stars part of the PhotoPills app, it tells me my Canon 6D Mark I using a 15 millimeter f2.8 that the 500 rule says you can go up to 33 seconds, which is Yeah, good luck with that because if you do more than 20, you're going to get star trails. Exactly. So it doesn't really work out. It never works. I hated it. That's why I do 13 seconds, but it Mm. tells me here I should even do nine seconds. Oh. And so if I capture at nine seconds, I can get even sharper. I can fight the limitations of a single image and get even sharper images Mm. at nine seconds. And so I'm going to be going into nine seconds more because the MPF rule – I'm just being turned on to it in the last couple months, really. Right, right. And it's just something that I, once the Milky Way season was over and I've learned everything that I thought I needed to know, I started doing more research and thought, oh, what's that? What's the MPF rule? Mm. And I learned it. I learned it recently. And thank you to Aaron Priest. Your article over at Petapixel taught me a lot. You can check that out. I'll put that in the show notes below. But the MPF rule, it's going to give me some sharper stars. I'm actually going to be stacking a lot more and panoramas with my 24 millimeter Rokinon. So I think I'm going to have sharper stars anyway, but I'm also going to follow the MPF rule. So that's going to be a lot of fun to do that. Nice. Anything else that you have from the astrophotography side? Um, yeah, that's pretty much covered it for now. Yeah. Awesome. So then let's go into our last segment. Let's take a quick break, come back and talk about general photography and end this podcast. Welcome back to the Photog Adventures podcast, guys. Thanks for going through a little short four or five seconds of just music while we transition to our last segment of the podcast. This one, we're going to forego gear time, forego tip of the week, forego listener adventure, or what new technique did you use? And we're just going to talk about general photography stuff that we learned. And there's just a few tips here, and we're almost done. I mean, there's tons that we've learned mm-hmm. and tons of things that we can talk about, but we're just you know trying to keep it tighter. We only put these in there and... You know, as we go through, we can write some things down and even add more. Maybe we'll save it for another uh, live broadcast. If you guys want to hear us ramble for four hours, we could talk to you about. All we could tell stuff you everything we learned, we learned. in 2017. <laughs> so I'm going to start off with the interesting thing that I've learned, and it's quite obvious. It makes sense to me, but you have the exposure triangle. And the exposure triangle makes up for any other thing. So if you have a shorter shutter, you make up for an ISO or you make up for it using a, a larger aperture. Mm-hmm, so you can mm-hmm. mess around with your at your exposure triangle with aperture changes, shutter changes, or ISO changes. And so you can get the exact same exposure based on you know tweaking one or the other. If you're going to go in a very, very quick shutter, bring your ISO up and you got the same exposure if you had a longer shutter and a low, low ISO. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm talking about. But what I'm learning is that in these situations where I want to capture color of a sunrise, color of a sunset, color of airglow in astrophotography, this is true in both of them. If I wanted to capture the color that's happening, if I brought my ISO up so that I had a same similar exposure as I would have had a longer shutter, the the airglow isn't quite there. Mm. The color of the sunrise, sunset, only the most vibrant colors come through. When I get the most, and you could see it immediately and understand that I'm telling the truth, when you see Eric Benedetti's photography, mm-hmm. the airglow in any one Star Trek photography is so much more intense mm. thanks to a longer shutter. Longer shutter equals more color. That's because what I'm discovering. more light is coming in. You're allowing more light to penetrate and access the the, uh, the sensor. And then making yeah. up for that lack of light with an ISO invariance Doesn't isn't going to change anything. Because all, all ISO is doing is amplifying your signal. That's all it's doing. It's not actually changing anything that your sensor is already seeing. It's only amplifying the signal. So the if you signal understand exposure, that. exposure signals, the signal light that, luminance. Yeah, it's, it, what it's doing is ISO, raising your ISO and your digital SLR is only amplifying that image that's coming into it. So it's, it's only a post-processing thing happening so if it's inside light the camera. Green, it amplifies light green. It's not going to go actually, deeper green. Right. Hmm. But longer exposure, like Aaron's saying, is physically letting more light come into and access the sensor versus just amplification. Huge difference in quality huge difference in color rendition. Well, of course that makes sense. Right. I mean, just hearing you put it that way, 
That makes complete sense. Right. And you just, but you just never think about it, you know, normally. <laughs> so it's been something that I've just learned recently too, is that, is that, um, ISO, ISO is just amplification versus longer exposure is technically going to give you better quality. Right. Now I should say that I threw out the word invariance there for ISO invariance and I use it incorrectly in my sentence back there. So just ignore mm. what I said. But, uh, when you try and cover with an ISO to get a better exposure of your Milky Way, you're going to have less airglow showing up. Mm-hmm. If you have a longer mm-hmm. shutter and not concerning yourself with star trails, you're going to show the airglow incredibly. Right, right. And so when I start doing star tracking photography and become little Eric Benedetti, that's what I'll call myself, <laughs> little Eric little. Benedetti, in about five years I'll get there to become <laughs> worthy of the title little <laughs> Eric Benedetti. I will have so much more color in my sky. Mm. And when there's the air glow that we experienced down there in Escalante, where it was just insane, and then yeah. we had an aurora, all of that is going to show up a hundredfold thanks right. to star tracking. Right. And my muscles will be huge because I carried a gigantic 60-pound setup <laughs> to go and do this. And, I, oh, man, it's just it's going to be crazy lacking of sleep. I already had a lacking of sleep year in 2017. We're going to have to do star trackings and do all of that, and then I have to process for many, many hours to get everything working. Yeah. That's going to be real fun. But it's worth we'll it. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> it's going to be worth it. <laughs> so color, you want better mm. color, longer shutter. Yep. Um, a general photography thing that I, um, learned this last year was just the simple fact that, um, it's not worth, and we talked about it last episode too, and a few other episodes that it's not worth risking your life or very badly injuring yourself over a picture. You know, um, I (laughs) was putting myself in somewhat harm's way when I ran across that ledge. I mean, it's not really a ledge. Okay. It's, it's a very steep dirt hill with lots of scrub oak to get the fall colors picture. I was booking it through that and I could have twisted my ankle or gotten snagged and pulled down at any moment of time Mm -hmm. during that, um, that sprint that I did along that ridge. And, uh, it was just like a deer trail that kept disappearing on me that I was following <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, bushwhacking through to get there. And uh, yes, it was faster, but it wasn't really worth the risk now that I look at it, think back on it. So um, there's going to be some times where you just have to be a smart human being and say <laughs> to yourself, look self. I don't self, think we have anyone on Photog Adventures that fits that. Mm, yeah, so far we don't. <laughs> I tried, I've, been, I've been trying to practice more and saying, look. <laughs> Is this worth the physical harm that if I do this, <laughs> is it worth it? And recently I've been like, no, not worth it. So I'm just going to take a step back. You know, um, <laughs> I'm still not really afraid of cliff edges, as you know, you've noticed. Um, yes, especially I have. Aaron. And um, <laughs> at least you've been cool about giving me the car keys. Yeah. So we've been practicing, you know, some smarter measures that way. So I can't wait to tell that joke at your, you know, funeral. At my funeral. It's like, well, at least I had the keys. I always knew he would <laughs> die this way, and we made a promise that I get the keys. And yes, I had them when he went off. I that drove cliff. myself out and <laughs> got help. If I have video footage of you dying, can I can I show it? Hmm. Do I have your explicit ap- approval of showing that stuff? I have to think about permission. I have to think about that. Jade will be your wife. Jade will be ticked at me, and your kids will be horrified. So I guess I wouldn't do Probably, that for that reason. Right yeah, there. and and. And YouTube probably won't let you do it either. So. It's morbid and crazy, and I joke yeah. about that. I really wouldn't. That footage would be hard Although to I see. would love to see the guy, the bear guy that died from the bear attack up in Alaska. You know, Why? The bear whisperer or whatever. He was like hanging out with bears for a year. Oh, just because he And then he finally got mauled and eaten by one. So it's just like, well, <laughs> and it was, his camera was rolling. There's actual footage of him <laughs> being attacked. So before I derailed this into the morbid yeah. conversation <laughs> of filming deaths, uh, what were you trying to say? Just be safe. Be <laughs> oh. safe out there. Be smart. Don't do dumb things for the sake of the picture. It's not worth it. <laughs> the situation I have had this whole year, and my Milky Way photography, I'm very proud of it. I'm mm-hmm. very excited. I have printings over there, and I have like maybe four landscape shots that I'm like, wow, awesome. Mm-hmm. I'm on my mm-hmm. way to becoming a much better landscape photographer. Yeah, yeah. And there's things about my landscape photography that I feel is just, just lacking. You know how you look at some like these telenovelas or these 
other types of shows that are low budget and you see their video footage versus a high budget film, right. color graded film and other really nice. I mean, there's an obvious polished difference between that and that. And mm-hmm. they might even have similar cameras, similar lenses, right. but there's just something different. And it's in the processing. It's in the handling of the light in the original capture. It's the mm-hmm. process of how you captured the shot. And so I look at my shots and I think, I look like a low-budget TV show right now. Mm. I have a shot of a cool area through the lens of a low-budget TV show. Mm. And while my composition might be solid and props to me and kudos for being there, I still feel like a little cheap production. Mm. uh, Cheap production, yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so I've been struggling thinking about, okay, what is it about my photography that's lacking? What is it about my processing that makes it look different? And Michael Shamblum might have showed me a way, a path to get there. He explained the path to me to glory. the path. He got me in. He got me down and he put his arm around me and said, Aaron, here's your path. Because you your mind is way. so prodigiously empty. Here. <laughs> he, he says that in his shots, why they looked, you know, soft and had a nice sharpness, but soft feeling to it. And he mentioned it in the podcast that you guys are probably all listened to, hopefully. And if you haven't, go listen to that one because he talks about it in his shots. And you look at his Phoenix shot mm-hmm. and his Rapture shot, there is something different and softer about his shots versus mine. Mine had these harsh contrasting shadows. He pointed out that it's just you probably have two darks of darks versus whites mm. and whites. And because of that, I get this, you know, but low budget TV show. But when you have a contrast between your lights and darks, but they're all kind of softened and yet you're all in focus. It's not like oh. it's asking your shot to have an Orton effect or right. a blur. You're just trying to take the contrast between both, you know, parts of the um, range, the, um, the histogram. No, I'm talking about like a, uh, you're looking at a light spectrum, a spectrum, oh, both yeah, ends yeah, of the yeah. spectrum. Yes, yes. You don't have to go from one extreme to the other. You're going to smooth that out. Mm. And so he says, bring up your shadows more, bring up your blacks more. You're probably not keeping them. You want contrast, but I'm over contrasting. Uh, yes, and so yes. I have this really, really dark black, really, really highlights there. And then they just looks cheaper. And so I'm thinking that might be it. And so mm. I'm going to be messing around with that and bringing it up more. And this is leading me to the thing that I thought I'd never say because it's gear related. Okay. I have a Canon 6D, and it was used when I bought it. It has a shutter count that I'm sure is horrifying right now. I haven't even checked. Probably not worse than mine. Nope, nope, guaranteed not. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm thinking that I don't have all my dynamic range that I can get. I can't pull it up as cleanly Mm. as I would like to. And no, you don't need certain gear to be a better photographer, but you can, as a photographer, outgrow your gear. Ah, yes, yes. And I think I've outgrowed my gear. I think I need to move on, get a nicer quality camera, something Mm -hmm. in the range Mm -hmm. of a D850. There you go, Rob. Something in the range of a Mark D4. 5D Mark IV. 5D Mark IV. And maybe even what Drew got a A7R3. I need to get something up there. You know, the I'm going to be down four thousand dollars in the end trying to get upgraded to get my cards for. Yeah. But I need something that I can bring back the range, and I can soften my blacks and have that contrast still, mm-hmm. and maybe mm-hmm. just maybe look smooth and buttery like some of these other photographers that I admire instead of looking like the telenovela cheap budget no offense to telenovelas because they're not low budget but there's a different look there and some of the low budget American shows actual low budget shows they copy that look there you know the soap opera kind of contrasty light and so I'm gonna I'm gonna move away from that I'm gonna grow and I think my first step is gear and then my processing. Now, technically it's my processing first and I can do it now with my current images, mm-hmm. but I need to get some different gear. I need to graduate this 6D to time lapses and second body situation. Yeah, because with the um, processing you can currently do, you're going to add noise to your image and you don't, you don't want to do that, you know. No, because Rob then will then see you don't it. Want to, Sorry, yeah, Rob. <laughs> you don't also want to, you don't want to introduce that noise and you don't want to also try to reduce it with other software, making your image look muddy. Yeah. And so then you run into this problem of, okay, well, I've introduced noise by bringing up my shadows, but now I've got to denoise them and then your image looks muddier. And then just like, and then what do you do? You're just like, ah. When you know, I'm capturing the shot, I'm not clipping in my blacks. Right. I'm not even all that low on my blacks. I'm towards a good middle range of my histogram. Mm-hmm. And yet I, I still get that. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think it's gear related, at least part of it. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm excited to yeah. see the change and report on it and say, you know what, guys, it was all me. I had processing issues versus gear. And maybe also say, man, the gear really changed things for me. Right. So that'll be interesting to think because I know for sure I definitely outgrew my um, Canon 80D, 80D. You didn't have an 80D. You had a 60D. Oh, that's right. Sorry, I, I did have a 60D. <laughs> <laughs> if I did get another one, it would be an 80D probably if I did get another <laughs> crop sensor for you know macro and fun, other fun stuff like that. Um, because it's a pretty sweet little lens. Um, maybe lens seven, camera? isn't it 7D crop? 70 is a crop too. 70D, yep. 70D 70 is just a little upgraded 7? with the isn't 80D. The 7D also? The 7D is a fantastic wildlife lens and it's still one of the best. It's a crop sensor too, right? Yep, it is yeah, a crop. That's, so maybe that's what I, Jeff Harmon has. 7D Mark II is a pretty sweet camera. So there, there, there might be con- com- competition between the 80D and the 7D when it comes to me wanting a crop sensor. I'd go the you 7D know. route. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, one thing that I learned in general was, you know, um, it's okay to clean your gear. Don't be afraid to it's clean okay your gear. It's okay to clean your gear. My tripod <laughs> is still a mess from Oregon. And then I tried going out to the salt flats and sticking my legs my legs out, and they were <laughs> stiff. And they were full of sand, and they wouldn't move. I had to, like, seriously do some crazy, like, kung fu action to get my legs right? extended from my tripod. Ugh. And I'm like, I know I should have cleaned these out. I'm the same way. Oregon is still inside my tripod. Yeah. Oregon's inside of it. <laughs> <laughs> It'll always be inside. That sounds... Okay, anyways. Um, yeah, so I need to take it apart I and clean it. I will cut out that perverted <laughs> almost hint. <laughs> so I really need to take my tripod apart, and I really need to take the legs all apart and unscrew everything and clean it because I'm going to hate using it in this, this next spring if it's still like that. Mm-hmm. And so I've got to physically do it. I've been, don't be lazy like I do. And then you're going to pay for it. So it's not worth it. Spend a couple hours, take your stuff apart. And I just saw some funny thing online, actually, just the other day on eBay. There's some companies, um, you know, the Chinese companies selling new stuff all the time. This mm-hmm. vacuum cleaner attachment that oh. clicks into your camera to suck out the dust inside your camera. <laughs> so it literally Ooh. has a Canon mount or a Sony mount or a Nikon mount. You stick <laughs> it in there and it has a little filter at the end and you stick your vacuum cleaner up against it. It sucks ah, out the dust. Yes, why not? And I'm like, wow, I don't know. Would that actually work? It stresses my mirror out. <laughs> but then I was thinking that'd be kind of cool to have the reverse too, to suck the dust out of your lens. So... I don't know, Chinese guys listening, invent that one next because uh, that would the be kind of cool. Chinese guys are listening. <laughs> They're the only ones who the can Chinese do this. Chinese spies that are listening. <laughs> <laughs> so we have had a fantastic year in 2017. Yeah, it was amazing. It, it's just, you know, this is a milestone, and I always say this, but we have a milestone right now where we're repeating something that we've done a year later. Right. We right. had the beginning of the podcast, and then we celebrated one year, but we haven't celebrated another year mark yet. Mm-hmm. But what we are celebrating right now is we've done an episode in 2017 or at the end of 2016 talking mm-hmm. about what we learned in 2016. Right. And right. now a year later, we've done it again, and it's interesting to see the growth, feel the growth, how different Photog Adventures really is right now and what, I mean, what it can be in a year from now. Uh, we're just so grateful for all of you. So grateful that you're hanging out right now and listening over your Christmas break, listening oh, yeah. to us talk about this stuff. And I hope that you guys have a ton of stuff that you've learned. If you do, go onto our show notes and let us know because I'd like to feature what you've mm-hmm. learned in the earlier episodes of next year because we have a listener adventure that we always do, but it would be kind of cool. Maybe in 2018, instead of doing a listener photog adventure, we have like a listener photog adventure and a listener photog lesson. Mm. An LPL, hashtag LPL, mm, because okay. it'd be cool to Something see they learn and that what they've come across and learned, some epiphany they had in their photography. Yeah, and it's cool. probably going to be things that I haven't thought of yet in my own stuff, and I can learn from them. Mm-hmm. And that'd be great. Because we definitely have some guys listening that are, guys and gals that are listening that are oh yeah, definitely more experienced than us. than us. And we would love to hear from you. I mean, there's lots of, we do hear it every once in a while, you guys chime in and be like, hey, you know, you guys ever think about this? We're like, oh, We're like, that's oh. awesome. Right, um, that's a good idea. But then Kirk, you can hashtag that. that. Yeah, you can hashtag that. And, uh, you know, so Kirk, when you're listening, um, Jeff, Dude, when Kirk you're would have a lot of information <laughs> that could help. Uh, Jeff Peterson would as well. Yeah, and I there's mean, a few other guys too oh, that are tons. really fantastic photographers and we'd love to hear from you more. In fact, we just scheduled and, uh, Andrew yeah. Marr, a YouTuber photographer oh, yeah. out in Australia and found out as I was scheduling him for the podcast that he actually listens to the podcast. That's awesome. And so he's a listener who knows more than I do about photography. Sure, sure. That'd be awesome to hear from you. I mean, we're going to in the beginning of January, by the way. That's exciting. I'm excited. Talking to Andrew Marr, yeah, that's cool. I have equal jealousy as I do excitement to talk to him because man... <laughs> 
he's succeeded more than us, a lot more than us in the same amount of time. And so it just kind of stings. Like Peter McKinnon, mm. he rocketed. It was There's nothing I could have done. I right, had a chance right. to compete with Andrew Marr, but we, we didn't have a chance. We didn't stand a chance to compete with Andrew Marr. He's, he's done awesome. 18,000 yeah. subscribers. Yeah. Oh, just so jealous of you, man. Can't wait to have you on and learn about your photography in Australia and hear about the summer that you're enjoying right now. And Yeah, yeah. <sighs> I hate That'd this cold. Good. So thank you guys for joining us. Thanks for being on another Photog Adventures podcast. The year is coming to an end. Enjoy the next episode where we talk with Jordan Yance about picture books and our goals for 2018. Mm -hmm. And we will see you guys again after the Christmas break in January of 2018. Thank you, patrons, for your support. We want to give a shout out to you. And thank Absolutely. you, listeners, uh, for going on Listener Adventures with us. Thanks oh, for your memories, spending man. Spending money been to join so us. so much great awesome. time hanging out with you guys and meeting you guys in person. And we hope to do more of that in the year to come. Yep. We definitely owe you guys a ton of stuff. And we're going to keep going and keep rolling and mm -hmm. make this life focused on around making it awesome for you guys. Happy New Year's, guys. Merry Christmas. And we'll Happy catch New you on the Year's. flip side. Ah, yes. Good night. And good night. <laughs>